Our Father, we do ask that you would be so kind in these moments that we have uh, together to reveal to us your Son and in his glory. Refresh our hearts. Teach us, instruct us, encourage us, inform our hope. Give us every grace that you have designed in the revelation of your word and of Christ that will enable us to increase in our worship and live more holy and obedient lives. We do ask that by the Spirit you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond in loving faith and adoration and praise. We commit this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles once again this morning to Isaiah chapter 9. As we are looking at Isaiah, really beginning in chapter 8, 21 through 9, 7. Taking these two weeks as a transition as we move and get ready to go back into Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And consider there the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. That kingdom that we long for and hope for. And as we turn to Isaiah chapter 9, we're looking at the mountain peak of Old Testament prophecy and anticipation concerning this coming child, the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. And not only is it a mountain peak in the anticipation of Christ and this coming Messiah, but it's one of the most glorious portraits of the magnitude of God's infinite and His sovereign grace. By way of review... We began last week by noting the context in which this promise comes. And it's a context of God's offer of mercy and man's choice of darkness. If you remember that Isaiah is writing primarily to a people who are being prepared for judgment. God's discipline against his people for their sin. In chapter 5 verse 13 he said, Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. For their lack of knowledge. It was indeed a dark time in the life of the nation of Israel, God's people. That exile would happen in 722 B.C. when God would use the nation of Assyria, the rod of His anger, to sweep through, decimate the land and carry off the tribes into exile. Remove them from the land, remove their idolatry and their corruption from God's land given to them and carry them off into exile. Around 587 B.C., God would use the nation of Babylon to sweep through and bring destruction to the city of Jerusalem and carry the southern tribe of Judah off into captivity for 70 years. Again, cleansing His land essentially from the years of disobedience and the failure to glorify Him. So there is a message of judgment that is dominant primarily... In chapters 1 through 39, it's a a preparation for those people of the generation that Isaiah is speaking to of the judgment of God. Yet there is also a constant appeal of God for their repentance. A constant option for them to turn from their wicked ways and to receive the, the mercy and the grace of God. To be refreshed in their relationship with Him. To be restored to a place of fellowship, a place of His blessing. 
He says after he begins condemning them in the opening verses of Isaiah, in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And then he calls them to reason with him and he gives them the promise that though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent, if you obey, if you turn from your wicked ways, God is a God overflowing with loving kindness and mercy to the repentant ones. So against this backdrop of the darkness of man's sin is the constant offer of God for them to know His mercy and not His judgment. He's always ready to show mercy and grace to the repentant sinner. But despite that, they continued on in the hardness of their heart. Despite the calls to repentance, they refused to do so. And so God makes this glorious promise... And essentially, God says, what you will not do to receive my grace, I will bring by my own arm, by my own strength, and by my own sovereign purposes to you, a disobedient people, a people walking in darkness. He begins to announce this promise in the context of our passage in Isaiah 9, actually back in chapter 7. If you'll remember the sign that he gave to the tribes of Judah, though speaking to Ahaz through Isaiah, he's giving it to the tribes of Judah, namely that a young maiden or a virgin will give birth to a child, and this child's name will be Emmanuel. That's the sign, and then he builds on that sign, which we'll look at later. So the first then is the context. The context of God addressing the people under judgment who are refusing His offers of mercy. We noted secondly then that there's this great contrast. The contrast of God's sovereign grace against the backdrop of man's sin. And that's where we picked up in verse 21. And there he describes the the gloom and the distress and the darkness of these people who are walking in the stubbornness of their own heart. Those who are living lives that provoke only God's wrath. And yet it is to those people that he shows grace. That he says he will bring salvation. He will bring forgiveness. He will bring peace to those who are deserving only of wrath. And So the backdrop of man's sin is painted in these dark colors. The dark and hopeless condition of man left to himself. Is always going to end in this downward spiral that will leave them hopeless. Wanting in darkness, expecting only judgment. And as we noticed in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 8, the response of this fallen heart to God is not one again of repentance, but shaking their fist at God, blaming God. Why are you bringing this distress upon us? Why are we hungry and why do we not experience your blessing? Instead of repentance, instead of brokenness, There's blame, blaming God for his troubles, never taking responsibility for their own rebellion, for their own guilt. Instead of brokenness, instead of humility, instead of repentance, the fallen heart of man responds to the word of God with rage, with rebellion, with hatred. And we noted that's how it is all the way up until the return of Christ in Revelation 16. The judgments come and man in his rebellious heart will shake his fist at God. And so that's the, the backdrop of man's sin, the blackness of man's sin. 
But again, against that, there is this picture beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9 of God's sovereign grace and it shines so brightly against such darkness. And so where there was contempt in verse 1, God's contempt for this rebellious people in this rebellious land of Zebulun and Naphtali, there's going to be God's favor. He will turn to them once again. In verse 2, where the people are in darkness, God will shine on them a great light. In verse 3, where there was gloom and distress, God is going to bring gladness and He's going to bring joy. In verse 4, where there was oppression by the enemy, God is going to bring deliverance. And this, beloved, is an amazing fact. It's an amazing fact. The idea of grace, the idea of forgiveness, the idea of mercy is something that should prize us. It's not something that we should expect. It's not something that we should assume from God. Very often, the gospel is almost presented like that. We, we can sometimes have the idea that God almost owes to me grace and mercy because He's God. And that's who He is and that's what He does. But in fact, grace is very surprising. We should not expect it. The fact that God gives it is amazing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. We sing it. It is amazing that God shows grace and we should lay hold of this reality. Much as Isaiah did, we won't turn there, in chapter 6. Feeling undone in the presence of God and then receiving His grace, it then brought to him a sense of a desire to worship God, to serve Him and to love Him. And so it should be for us who know Him. This morning we're going to look then at the third point here, namely the child that's promised. Before we do that, though, let me begin actually in verse 2 of chapter 9 and read down to verse 7, and then we'll begin this last section here. And so this is the beginning, then, of the promise of God. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, and they will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What a glorious, glorious promise. And as we noted last week, these are actually written in the past tense, but here translated in the future tense because they are looking forward to that day. But actually written in the past tense by Isaiah the prophet, speaking here then of the certainty of God's accomplishing everything that he has laid before them by promise here. So let's note thirdly then the child, the child spoken of. The child which is God's provision of one to rule in righteousness, wisdom, and peace over his people. 
Now, though we're going to look at the child, I actually want to begin with a preliminary matter. A preliminary matter. And I want to note up front here, and and don't want us to miss this, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but you need to recognize this for the great encouragement of your own heart. And that is the nature of prophecy and of Scripture. Now, we noted last week that said every promise of God, every prophetic word of God is in fact a declaration of His sovereignty. That He is the one who is Lord over heaven and earth. He's the one who declares the end from the beginning. And only He can do that. And so when He gives a promise, it is a promise that comes with the guarantee of the very sovereign nature of God. Now that's important. Because when these people whom Isaiah is addressing were wrapped up with the influence of the pagan idolatry and all of the false gods that went with that, God declares himself as their God, the only God, by being the one who alone can declare the end from the beginning. He says this, don't turn there, I'm just going to read a few verses. In chapter 44, he says in verse 24, I, the Lord and the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself, spreading out the earth, all alone, no help. Verse 25, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness. Listen to verse 26. Confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers, it is I who say of Jerusalem, she will be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up her ruins. And on he goes. The idea is, look, all of the things that your false gods divine to happen in the future, in fact, will come to nothing. I will make them foolishness. But the word that I speak, the one who made heaven and earth, will indeed come true. He says in verse, or chapter 45, in verse 21, he says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. And then he says again in chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. In other words, God by his own design sets forth his prophetic word as a declaration that he alone is God, he alone is the sovereign God, and he is alone the one to be worshipped. Now, why is that important here? Well, first of all, because that tells us the very nature of Scripture and the nature of the prophecy that he gives here, namely that it is the word of the sovereign God. In Isaiah 7.14, and then here in verses 1-7 through of chapter 9, these are some of the clearest passages that prophetically anticipate this coming of Christ. Though latent in there, not explicit in all of its ways, the first and the second coming of Christ, but it looks forward to Him. And indeed, the gospel writers, as we have noted, show that all of these things were fulfilled in the person of Christ, in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you're familiar with these. We read them often uh, during Christmas especially. But let me remind you of them in 
Matthew chapter 1, then, referring to what we just, or what we looked at last week in chapter 7, 14 of Isaiah, he says, now all of these things took place, speaking of this virgin, this child being put in the virgin Mary. All these things took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, the child of promise is the child given, revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Luke. Don't turn there, just listen. In Luke chapter 1, verse 89, he says this. And the child, well, in, excuse me, in verse 79, he says this. Speaking of, this, this, of Christ, he said, He's the one who will shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. In the shadow of death. He's the one who's going to come. He's the one who's going to be a light to the nations. He's the one that when his ministry began, was the fulfillment then of these words. Listen again to just Matthew 12. Speaking of the beginning of his ministry here. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken in custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And it's there that in, by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali that he began his ministry. And Matthew says, "...to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned." And Jesus then began from that point to announce and to demonstrate the power of the kingdom. The point is this. That scripture does what only God can do. And that is declare the end from the beginning. Who can do that? God can do that. What does that? Scripture does that. What is the nature of scripture then? It is a divine word of God to us. Be encouraged by that. Argue that way when you defend scripture. And be encouraged. Remember that these words were written 700 years before Christ came roughly 700 years before he came. They weren't written after the fact. They were written before the fact so that we might gain confidence in the word of God. Scripture then is God bearing witness to himself. It's a comfort to those who are bowed before him, who trust in him. But it's also a warning for those who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ, for those who have not yet put their trust in him, then it is another testimony, another another point of God revealing himself that is rejected by the heart of sinners that will, in fact, count against them on that great day. So I would encourage you to consider the nature of Scripture and consider your response to it, particularly here as we look at this glorious promise of God looking forward to the promise of the child. And that is our second point, the promise of the child here. And again, this is one of the most majestic descriptions of Christ and His kingdom in all of prophetic literature. And Isaiah is full of these anticipations of Christ. I want you to notice at the beginning there, verse 6. Notice that he says for, that little word for. And you'll notice that beginning in verse 4, uh, he, gives, he begins those. This is the third of those beginning in verse 4. And he's explaining here, beginning in verse 4, all that he's already declared in verse 3. How is this going to come? How is the light going to shine? How is there going to be gladness and so forth? It is here because 
First, in verse 4, he's going to break the yoke of the burden. He's going to bring peace in verse 5. But what he's really grounding all of those things here in is this final declaration of the child. This final declaration of the child. How is this great light going to shine in this child? How, is God, how will God's enemies be defeated by this child? How will God fulfill his promise to David in this child? How will God establish his kingdom and eternal rule in this child? How will God's presence be among his people and bring everlasting joy and gladness in this child? He answers it then in verse 6. For a child will be born to us and a son will be given. A child will be born to us and a son will be given. Now as we've mentioned in passing, this child here then is picking up on the promise that God made to well, to Ahaz, really to the tribe of Judah, but spoken to Ahaz of a sign that would be given to the tribe of Judah. Here he picks up on that language and he expands on the promise. Now we noted back in 714 that the immediate apparent fulfillment of this promise is the children of Isaiah. And indeed, as he says in chapter 8, the children of Isaiah were for signs to the nation of Israel. But the children of Isaiah were not the fulfillment. They were not the fulfillment of this promise. It was something yet to come. Something yet to come in the future. Which we noticed, first of all, that Matthew identifies in chapter 4, or chapter 1, in the birth of Christ. But even here, we recognize that Isaiah's children have already been born... The, the coming of Assyria to discipline the, na- the nation of, uh, well, actually the tribe of Judah, not to carry them off, but to discipline them, has already happened as God anticipated. And yet, though those things have already happened, this promise of the child has not yet been fulfilled. He's still anticipating it here in Isaiah chapter 9. This promise of Emmanuel, this promise of God with us. Now this name, Emmanuel, or this title, isn't a proper name. It's rather a description of his attributes or his character. It is the the surety that God is going to be with his people. That he'll be with his people. He uses it, of course, in chapter 7. He mentions it again, this phrase, though not as a title, in verse 10 of chapter 8. He says, uh, for God is with us, speaking there of the fact that Though judgment is going to come or discipline that God is not forsaking his people. But then he drops it. That phrase is not used again. But though he's dropped the phrase, he hasn't dropped the promise. In fact, he picks it up again here in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9. So what was implicit in chapter 7 becomes explicit here in chapter 9. And it is a glorious promise. A glorious promise of a child who will in fact be God with his people. God with his people. And what is unique about this promise isn't so much that God will be with his people, because that's in fact a concept that's throughout Scripture. What's unique about this promise is that God with his people will all be embodied in the coming of this child. That's the connection that stands out. That's the connection that's unique, and that's what Isaiah is picking up on here. So let's note here then the nature of the child. The nature of the child. It's not any child, but a child who from birth will bear the titles of deity. Bear the titles of deity. 
This is then a clear anticipation of the incarnation of the Son becoming flesh. Now that's not to say, of course, that Isaiah would have understood that or that the people who first heard it would have understood all of that. But they would have felt the tension. They would have felt the tension. It really falls under that same thing that Peter talked about in 1 Peter 1 where he says they made prophecies anticipating the Christ, but they didn't really understand times and places. They didn't understand all of the details, but they felt the tension and they recognized what was there. And so it is here. It's the very same kind of tension that Jesus brings out, in fact, in his discussion to the scribes and the Pharisees when he said, Okay, the leaders of the Jews, tell me, what did David mean when he said, the Lord said to my Lord? There's a tension there. There's something that couldn't be resolved, but it clearly said more than what was on the surface. It stretched their mind. It it caused them, as Peter said, to keep seeking and to keep searching to understand what was being spoken of by the Lord and by the Spirit who was in them prophesying of these things. And so that's the kind of tension here. In the light of New Covenant revelation, we understand this child is indeed the second person of the Trinity who was going to come and inhabit humanity as our Messiah. Notice two things about this child. First of all, he's going to be human. Clear. He's a child. He's a child. He's going to be born, he says. A child will be born to us. He will be born as a natural offspring of a woman. He anticipates this again also in verse 1 of chapter 11, that he'll be a shoot that will come from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots. There's a child that's going to come, a, a human king, a human one who will rule over his people. And it's interesting that he would use the term child. What would you have expected him to say here? In light of the prophecy of Isaiah, what, what kind of language you would you have maybe have expected? Maybe something like this. A king will be born to us. A king will come and sit on David's throne. But he doesn't say that. He says a child. He uses this, this description of what would, we would see as, as weak, almost as helpless. One has said that God is strong enough to overcome his enemies by becoming vulnerable, transparent, and humble. And the only hope, in fact, for turning enmity into friendship. Imagine what that would have sounded like. I mean, these glorious terms of a government resting on his shoulders, defeating the enemies of God, a light to the people, all inherent in this child. A picture, I think here in part, at least, of the humility of God, his weakness being stronger than men, to use the language of Paul. He says a child then will be born to us who's going to bring about these promises, and a son will be given Now, this is descriptive not only of gender, of course, it's more than that. It was a son, of course, that was promised to David. A son that came from his line that would sit on his throne, who would rule over it forever. And so he's connecting here then to that promise given to David. He'll say it explicitly in the next verse. He'll sit on the throne of David. But here then is that son. It's Elias. Remember that son that was promised to you? Here he is. And it's going to be through a child who's born to us, a son who is given to us. Now again, 
There's, there's truths here that are latent here that would not have been readily understood, understood by Isaiah or those who heard, but that would come to light in the fullness of the revelation of Christ. Do you remember the words of Hebrews 1? What does he say? He spoke in latter times in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days, how has he spoken to us? He's spoken to us in a son, in a son. Surely there is more latent here that would be revealed. This is the son. It was ultimately the son of God. But again, here they just understand this primarily as this one who's going to come, who's going to be a human king, and he's going to sit on the throne of David. And I want you to notice again, in passing, but not so much in passing, this is really at the heart of our worship, that these are things that are sovereignly accomplished by God. In fact, in this little section here, these are the only passive verbs, will be born and will be given, which is interesting because it means he's just another way of emphasizing the fact that this is God's doing. There is no way that this nation in distress and gloom, walking in darkness, that could provoke from God an expression of his goodness and grace. God's doing it. God's doing it. God's doing this by his own sovereign decision, from his own character of goodness and grace and love, and he's doing it for the praise of the glory of his grace. So he's going to give a child, and this child is unique because though he will be human, he will bear the titles and attributes of deity. Look at what he says there in the middle of the verse. He says, The government will rest on his shoulders, speaking there of of the fact that he will be the, the supreme monarch of his people. We'll consider that later. But look here. His name will be called. His name will be called. Now we know and are familiar with the fact that the idea of name here, particularly in the Hebrew mindset, speaks of much more than just a reference to a person. In other words, uh, just a way to identify one person from another person. But it includes the idea of character and reputation. God's name, to speak of God's name, was to say uh, it was commensurate with all of who God is. It was commensurate with his glory and his promises and his character and all that he revealed about himself. That's why we do not take God's name in vain. To use the name of God in a way that doesn't express reverence is to belittle God. It is to make him less than he is. And so we take that very seriously and God takes it very seriously. And so it is here with this child. His name will be called. These are not proper names, as if his mother would have used this to call him inside from outside. These are descriptions of his character. They're descriptions of his nature. And some have tried to make this fit a mere human person, to make these mere human titles. Of course, you want to deny the deity of Christ. In fact particularly in the medieval times, Jewish exegetes tried to to say the fulfillment of this was King Hezekiah. However, that fails on several fronts, and not least of which is the fact that these titles can only be used to describe God himself. Let's look at them. We'll have to go quicker than I wanted, but let's look at these. First of all, then, what will he be called? What will describe his nature, the character of this one who is to come? He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. And again, this would have been a marvelous promise of hope to those who had wicked counselors, who were counseling the nation badly and leaving them into further corruption that would only bring judgment. But here, this one to come is a wonderful counselor, a wonderful counselor. This is marvelous. Now, some of the older versions, 
KJV, for example, and, and many of the older versions, take this as two separate titles. In other words, that one thing he will be called is wonderful. Another thing that he will be called is counselor. And that's possible, but we're going to take it as a single title, as most uh, more contemporary translations do. But we'll consider each term carefully on its own. And what a wonderful description this is of his character. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. The idea of wonderful is that that's beyond human capacity. It's when, it's when God acts and it elicits from people who observe those acts, in the verb form of course, of an attitude or a response of wonder and praise and adoration. It's precisely the word used in Exodus 15 to uh, note the people's response after his great acts of reveal, uh, delivering them from Israel. He says this in verse 11. And this is consistent with how the word is used. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Working wonders. It's something that elicits praise. It was used sometimes of a name, if you'll remember, in Samson's father, Manasseh, or Manoah, excuse me, in Judges 13, 18, we won't turn there, when he, this angel was speaking to him, which was clearly an angel of the Lord. It was clearly a, a theophany or a Christophany, whichever you'd like. And, and as he was giving this sacrifice, Manoah was, this angel went up into the flame of this sacrifice and this angel was identified by the name of wonderful, clearly marking him as God. This is a word of, used of God, of God's acts, of God's works, of God's name. He will be a wonderful counselor. This will be a, a person of divine nature. The idea of counselor here is, of course, one who gives advice. He makes wise decisions based on understanding, insight, discernment. The king's surround themselves with counselors, much like a president might surround himself with cabinet members. Hopefully they listen to them, but nonetheless, that's the, the human king surrounds himself with counselors, but this one will be called Wonderful Counselor. He is one who will not surround himself with counselors, for he will need one, not need one, but he will in fact himself be the embodiment of divine wisdom. Now there was a glimpse of this, a small glimpse of this in the life of Solomon. And yet his wisdom was ultimately marred by corruption of his own heart, his sin. His life didn't match up with the things that he knew. And so his kingdom failed and his wisdom ultimately failed. But here's one who will not fail. His name will be Wonderful Counselor. He will not need human counselor, counsel. He will himself be the embodiment of of it. And Godus, again, all of these is not to say that he will be, uh, this is something assigned to him, but it's, it's inherent to his nature. It's what his name will be. It describes his character. Who does that remind you of? Obviously, Christ. This child has already been identified with the one who has come, who has revealed the Father to us. The one whom Paul says in Colossians 2.9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And he says back in verse 3, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I want to make a note here. That's a glorious truth of Christ. But let me connect this a little bit more 
to the, what's available to us of Christ as our divine counselor, our wonderful counselor. Note, and I'm going to read this briefly here, but in chapter 11 he says this. So he's speaking here of this one who will come. He's picking up on another theme that runs through Isaiah, this branch, clearly still speaking of the Messiah. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord, in verse 2, will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of strength, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In other words, this one who's going to come is going to be marked by a unique presence of the Spirit of God. That's what would mark the Messiah. And of course, that is in fact what marked Christ at the beginning of his ministry. The Spirit came, the Spirit, uh, John saw the Spirit hovering over him, as it were, marking him as one who was filled with the Spirit in a unique way. As a matter of fact, John 3.36 said he has the Spirit without measure. And why is that important? How does that connect here? In this way, the same Spirit of Christ is the same Spirit who takes from Christ in John 16 and reveals to us the written Word. It reveals to us the foundation that comes through the prophets and the apostles who gives to us Scripture, divine revelation. It is the same Spirit of God who opens Scripture to us and it is that same Spirit of God who in Scripture helps us to have and gives us the mind of Christ. Now listen to this. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2. He says this, He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have in Scripture the divine wisdom of God. We have access to this wonderful counselor and everything that he thinks and wants us to know in Scripture. And we have the Spirit of God to open up to us the mind and give us access to the wonderful counselor on whom we can entrust our lives and whose wise counsel is something the world cannot understand, but we follow and entrust everything. He is our comfort, He is our wisdom. He is going to be a wonderful counselor. Notes next here then, he will be mighty God. Mighty God. Now the term mighty here is used often in military context. It's used of Israel's king, sometimes of the, the warrior king and the warrior leader. But here, when it's attached to the term for God here, El, it speaks here of one who is divinely mighty. Divinely mighty. One who possesses the might of God, omnipotence, as it were. And here is the one, again, he's not called to have the might of God, but he himself is said to be mighty God. It's who he is. And this is an important distinction. As a matter of fact, just for your understanding here, Isaiah always uses that one term. You know, there's other terms for God, but that one term, El, for God, always speaking of the God who is, the God who is the God of Israel. And he makes a strong distinction then between man and God and the false idols of men and those and the, and the truth of God. Listen to Isaiah 31.3. Just listen to the contrast here to feel what 
these people were to be anticipating and what was revealed in Christ. He says in verse 3, Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. And so the Lord will stretch out His hand and He's going to help them. He makes a, a strong distinction here between, look, whatever men sit on the throne that are mere men cannot be compared to God. Men are not God. Your idols are not God. But here this child is going to come who will be a child born to us human. And yet he will bear a title that God himself alone can bear. Mighty God. Mighty God. What a glorious promise and a glorious hope. As a matter of fact, this exact same title is used by Isaiah one other time in verse 21 of chapter 10. He says, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God, the mighty God of Israel. Here's one who's going to come, who's going to have or be the embodiment of divine omnipotence, the one who as God will rule over his people. And Jesus, the one who did come, the one who's already been identified as the fulfillment of this promise was exactly that. He was the one who was the full embodiment of the divine glory of God. In human flesh. We read it in Colossians 2.9. The fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in Christ. What an amazing, amazing truth. In John 10.30 he said, I and the Father are one. Which indeed includes the idea of being one in purpose. But it's more than that. For they act with the same divine authority. Accomplishing things that only God can do. He will be mighty God and He will be one who rules over His people. And what a tremendous truth that is for them to know that He will accomplish everything that He's declaring. And what a tremendous truth to us. What a tremendous truth. What did Christ promise Peter in Matthew 16, 18? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Who could make that claim but mighty God alone? Who could make that claim but one in whom all of divine omnipotence dwells in bodily form? Who could make that claim but the one who spoke all things into existence and apart from him nothing has come into being that has come into being? Who could make that claim other than the one of whom it could also be said that he upholds the world by the word of his power? This one who's going to come is mighty God. God in the flesh. He's a child, but he will bear in his person all of the attributes of divine power, of divine wisdom. He'll be eternal father. Eternal father. Striking term used only here. What does he mean by eternal father or father? Sometimes that can be confusing. If he's speaking of Christ, isn't, isn't it God the Son or God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit? Well, yes, of course. But here, this one, this child, is going to be called Eternal Father. Eternal Father. How does he mean that here? The idea of Father here is not identifying the first person of the Trinity... He's identifying characters and attributes of him. And here, the idea of Father speaks of him as protector and provider of his people. 
One has said this, I think it's helpful, that fathers suggest the tenderness and the compassion that characterizes human fathers. The tender, faithful, and wise trainer, guardian, and provider for his people, even in eternity. It speaks of his care for them, his compassion for his people. He's going to be one who shepherds them, as it were, who will be to them as a father and bear the qualities of fatherhood to them. And yet he will, again, do this as God. Eternal father. Not just father. Egyptians and had the idea of a, of a father over a nation. Sometimes that's used in the idea of kings. But this is not what he's referring to here. There's no way to make it fit that kind of language. He is the eternal father. The eternal father. Isaiah uses that description of eternal only in reference to God, not of any mere man, only in reference to God. So this one who's going to bear those characteristics of father to his people is one who's going to do so as their God. Not simply their king, but also as their God. God alone is the one, according to Isaiah, who inhabits eternity. For thus he says... The high and the, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, who is eternal and whose name is holy. Speaking there of God. So he's going to be the one who embodies divine wisdom and divine counsel. Who's going to bear in himself all of the attributes of divine omnipotence. He's going to be marked one who is as eternal father to his people in compassion and care. I think that's picked up in a sense by Jesus' words in John 10, 17, where he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I care for my sheep. I care for them. I provide for them. I lead them and I guide them just as a father, a good father would. He's called also the Prince of Peace. And this is tremendous, a comforting title again to those who people who are constantly embattled in conflict and in war and oppression. The idea of peace here is one of the most important theological terms in all of the Old Testament, as a matter of fact. It's an ultimate blessing of the covenant. Now, the basic meaning here is the idea of the absence of strife, the absence of strife, the absence of conflict and of war and of oppression. But it better contains the idea of completeness, of wholeness, and of fulfillment. It's not just that there's not war, but it has the idea of harmony. Fulfillment. In a matter of fact, in Isaiah 48:18 and other places, it's translated as well-being, well-being, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of harmony. Again, this is the longing of men, and particularly God's people, and it's a central hope of nations. It's a simple hope of these nations, again, who are, who are only going to expect the hostility of the nation of Assyria. And here they get to hear, know that one day one is going to come who will be ruling over a kingdom of peace, a kingdom that he's promised to us. We looked at that already in chapter 2 and says that that time is coming. He says when they will, when they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks... Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. And again, this was foreshadowed in the kingdom of Solomon, but it failed because of sin. Because of sin. But this is one who's going to come and rule in peace, and there will be no end to this peace. It will be forever. 
But there's more here than that. There's more here than that. Again, what was the cause of their conflict? What was the cause of the conflict among the nation of Israel? What was the cause of the conflict in nations today? It is sin. That was really the issue. When, they're, when they anticipated their Messiah, when they were anticipating a kingdom of righteous and justiceness, of justice, there is the anticipation then that the greater problem of sin will be removed. It will be removed. This Prince of Peace will not only bring an absence of conflict among the nations, but he'll bring more than that. Now he's going to say this explicitly in chapter 53. Listen to this verse in verse 5. And the word well-being here is actually the same word, shalom, that's used for peace uh, in Isaiah 9, 6. He says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our peace or our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. Whatever promise of peace that Isaiah gives and whatever promise of peace is going to come in this promised Prince of Peace is going to come because ultimately this child, this child who is king, this child who bears the titles of God will also be the one who bears the chastening for the sin of his people. He's going to bring peace because he's going to remove the enmity and the hostility and the opposition that sin brings. What a glorious promise. Glorious promise. Isaiah anticipates the announcement of this peace in chapter 52. He says this, familiar words, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. You see, there's the idea of fulfillment, of happiness with this idea of peace. And who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And notice there how many of the attributes here described of this child. He's going to be one who reigns. He's going to bring happiness and peace and salvation because he's going to be the one who breaks that final enmity that, that exists between man and God, namely sin and rebellion. This indeed is the good news preached to us. It's the good news that we preach to others, isn't it? He says in chapter 10 of verse 15, picking up on these verses in Romans, he says, How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And what is the good news? Is that there can be peace with God. Peace with God. And this is precisely what Christ brought foundationally. Outside of that kind of peace, no peace could ever last. No peace could ever come. No peace could ever be a foundation on which God brings and builds and establishes this kingdom. He says it in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Romans. Listen, having been justified by God or by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he brought peace. This was the hallmark of Paul's greetings to the churches. What did he say repeatedly? Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Romans, to the Colossians, to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, to those who are in Ephesus and so on and so forth. He announces peace and the great 
reality on which the church stands as the apostle addresses them is that we are at peace with God. That should be a tremendous and is a tremendous, tremendous truth. He brought peace between Jew and Gentile who were at enmity with one another. He brought peace to a people who are marked by their pursuit of peace. Who's in the kingdom? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who are in his kingdom are marked by this peace. And it's not just external peace here that he's going to bring, this Prince of Peace. It's the inner spiritual peace. They walked in distress and gloom because that's all that sin ultimately can bring. But the one who yields to this ruler, this one who's coming, will not be marked by distress and gloom, but by gladness, by joy, and by peace. Those who live under his rule. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord, but there is peace for his people who sit and submit under this Prince of Peace he is the one who's coming. What a beautiful anticipation. What, is the, what a beautiful fulfillment that we have in Christ. He's brought peace between us and God. Let's look at this lastly here then, the nature of this kingdom. Here is a, the nature of the child is one who's going to be a ruler. He's going to be a child. He's going to be human. And he's going to rule over a kingdom that's coming. And it's going to be a divine kingdom. As the nature of the child is reflected in his divine nature, not only his humanity, that he will be God dwelling among his people as a human ruler, but he will also rule over a kingdom that will bear these same qualities. Look at what he says in verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government, and again, or of peace. Or of peace. What a wonderful promise again to us. It's not a temporary peace. But it is a forever peace. It's a permanent peace. It is an eternal peace. It's a peace brought to all of those who are in harmony with his will and with his glory. And it's a peace and it's a rule that's going to increase. That's the idea of government. Is the idea of dominion. It's a dominion that's going to spread in its rule when he comes to establish his kingdom... And it's going to be a dominion that is marked not by oppression and war, but by peace. And it's going to come with divine authority. This is what he says in Isaiah 37. O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel who is throned above the cherubim, you are, not, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, and you have made heaven and earth. He says later that for the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish and the nations will be utterly destroyed. But the nation that does serve him, the nation that is under him, this ruler to come will be marked by peace. By peace. What a, what a contrast. What a complete contrast and contradiction to the kingdoms of this world. What a complete contrast to the kingdom of the Antichrist that we have been looking at. A kingdom that will be marked by war, by greed, by death, by oppression, by hatred and envy and jealousy. What a contrast to that kingdom when this one comes to establish his kingdom. It's going to be one marked by peace, peace, self-sacrifice, an establishment of what is going to be just, true, holy, Marked by love, marked by the goodness and the grace of God. People dream of this kind of kingdom. People long for this kind of kingdom. 
But it will not come until there is repentance. Until there is repentance. And again, what a contrast to our present age. For them it was the threat of Ahaz. And for, or excuse me, to Ahaz it was the threat of Israel and the king of Aram. For us it might be the threat of Iran shooting a missile over an American carrier. It might be the threat of North Korea who's always threatening some kind of nuclear warfare. It might be the threat of Russia who has just declared that uh, America is a threat to their national interest and their official documents. There's threat, there's war, there's oppression, there's always the threat of danger. And indeed it will come even to our own nation. And that's what marks this age. But here he promises one who when he comes that will cease. There will be peace among the nations. Peace among those who are under his rule and under his authority. And it's associated with his being on the throne of David. Look at verse 7. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Every other ruler that sat on David's throne failed because of sin. This one will not fail. We want to finish up, so let me just mention this. What is he going to do? It's the promise again that was made to David. 2 Samuel 7, 14. One would sit on your throne. Here is the one that would fulfill that. Would sit on the throne. And he will establish it. It speaks of the certainty of it. Again, this is a rule of absolute sovereignty. Absolute sovereignty that's never ending. The longest dynasty known to man lasted about 27 years. It's in Japan. It's a long time. But it doesn't compare to this dynasty, this rule of this coming one who will rule forever. And he will uphold it with justice and righteousness. You turn on the news, you always hear what? A cry for justice. A cry for justice. We want fairness. We want justice. Very often that cry comes not as a true cry for justice. It comes as a cry for the courts working towards our own agenda. Justice is rarely the true intent of those who claim or want it so loudly or cry for it so loudly. But even those who do make a cry for true justice, who do want what is right to be uh, done, it's not promised that it will be because we live in a fallen world and the corruption of this society. The only time that true justice and true righteousness will come is when the Prince of Peace comes, Mighty God comes, Wonderful Counselor comes, This child who is promised comes and establishes it when he sits on David's throne. And it will be perfect justice because there will be only perfect righteousness in this king. It's what we hope for. It's what we long for. And he ends on a note of sovereignty. It's what he will accomplish. He says he will establish it. He will uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Guess what? We all should be concerned about the political process. We have a role to play in our country, but America will fall. We hope not in our generation. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but it will fall. Every great nation falls. The Roman Empire fell. Every nation will fall. But this is a nation that will, this is a a kingdom that will not fail. It will be from then on and forevermore. It's the only kingdom that will last forever. And it will be the one on which Christ sits as king and over which he rules. And this is the kingdom we wait for. 
how do you know if you're in this kingdom? How do you know if you're a citizen? Paul says we're citizens not of this kingdom, but our citizenship is in heaven. How do you enter this kingdom? Well, we know the answer to that. Jesus gave it to us when you're poor of spirit. What marks those in the kingdom of Christ? Poverty of spirit. Mourning over sin. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Being a peacemaker. Being pure of heart. Being willing to suffer in this present age in the kingdom that is in rebellion to God. Waiting for the kingdom that Christ will bring when he returns. It's a kingdom that's marked those who are in it by delight in her king and her God. Who delight in obedience. Who delight in trust and humble love and walking to the glory of their great king. I pray that you know this kingdom and that you're hoping for this kingdom and you live in light of this kingdom. And I hope that you've entered it. Obviously being in these four walls and hearing about that kingdom doesn't make you in it, but it is the one who's trusted in the Lord, who has the evidence of the Spirit of God in them because that's the mark of this kingdom, joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. This is a glorious promise and a glorious kingdom. And we await our glorious king. And until he comes, may we wait with anticipation and faithfulness and obedience and hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word which does give to us the certainties on which we build our hope. The certainties on which we find our joy. It gives us the glories that we anticipate. It reveals to us your plan, not only in the present, but in the future. It tells us what you're working for. We do not need to be a people who in darkness, for indeed you have given us light. We do not need to be a people in despair, because you have given us a certain hope. We do not need to be a people who are in gloom, because in Christ we have our everlasting joy By the Spirit of God. Help us to demonstrate this in our own lives. Fill us with the hope and the promise and the fullness of what you have laid out before us here. As Paul prayed to the Ephesians, enlighten the eyes of our heart, as it were, to see your glory and to live in light of these glorious realities. And for those here who have not submitted their heart, who have not bowed the knee to Christ, who have not lost everything to gain you and your salvation. I pray that you would work so in their heart today. And we pray these things in the matchless name of him who died and rose again for us, the name of Christ. Amen.